Just don't F me up. Okay, welcome back. Welcome if it's your first time and welcome back if it's not. Welcome to the shit show. Just don't F them up podcast. We're back. We're back at it again. We have another awesome, awesome guest on with us today. I don't know how we are pulling these guests off. We have like the creme de la creme with us today. (laughs) A unicorn therapist. That's what we call these kind of therapists in our community. A unicorn therapist. This is Megan Cunningham. She's a licensed professional clinical counselor. She is the of Cunningham Behavioral Health in Rochester. She also does telehealth services. And the reason she is a unicorn is because she works with teens and kids with eating disorder behaviors and anxiety and OCD. And this is, I mean, I would imagine post-pandemic, you're seeing perhaps an increase in behaviors. Um just from what I've read, I've seen like OCD is, um, the diagnoses are increasing anyway. Um, and the anxiety post pandemic, like what has that been like for you? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, yeah, all of those areas, there was an increase, um, in prevalence and, and gosh, the eating piece is, is probably the more alarming one even so Mm -hmm. just because kids were home you know, a lot. And there was added stress and the structure and routines were different. Kids weren't getting their built-in lunch at school and parents were still working and, you know, kind of tons of kids, I think, just unintentionally got off track with their eating and behaviors around that, which is already just vulnerable when you're kids anyways. Um, And then, yeah, anxiety, OCD, also very much uh, common in the COVID pandemic time. Yeah. Yeah. Can we start with kind of like the basics of like, what is an eating disorder and what's disordered eating? Yeah, that's a great question. So disordered eating, again, it's a, it's a, it's going to be a spectrum like anything where um, behaviors start to come up that are just outside of normalized eating. So that could be, you know, increased focus on like dieting behaviors or um, just missing meals for a variety of reasons. I would say with kids and teens, um, you know, appetite changes, getting up early, not feeling super hungry. Oh, I'll just miss breakfast. A lot of those behaviors kind of emerge unintentionally for most people. Um, And then Sometimes it's, you know, related to other things, like if they're on a medicine that suppresses appetite, if they're going through a lot of stress or changes that can influence eating. Um, If parents are busy and aren't there to prepare meals, they might just not eat as much as they normally would. Um, And then what kind of ends up happening, I would say for the majority of youth is that they kind of back into an eating disorder unintentionally, where they've now lost a bit of weight, or even if they haven't lost weight, they haven't gained enough to stay on their growth curve. And they keep growing taller and puberty hits, and they're supposed to gain a bunch of weight, and they just haven't. And then, oops, now I'm feeling different. I'm having more anxiety and depressive symptoms. And yep, a lot of that is because I'm malnourished and didn't even realize it. Um, And then all of the symptoms that go along with an eating disorder do kind of emerge along with that weight loss. Um, Yeah. So I would say that's probably the most common where it's, it's kind of an unintentional. It's not typically what you'd see on movies of, I want to be super thin and going to go on this crash diet. That's less likely than 
a lot of the other reasons why eating difficulties start. Wow. What about in like little kids? Yeah, little kids, picky eating is a super common thing where, Mm -hmm. you know, to some degree, picky eating is picky eating is a normal kind of developmental shift. But for some kids, if they're not getting exposure to different foods, um, that can become kind of a tricky cycle to get out of. um, And that could become a bit more avoidant in nature. Um, And then I also think that like, you know, kids who have allergies develop maybe some fears Mm. around eating and then, you know, accidentally limit their food a bit too much. Um, And then younger kids who have anxiety are also more prone to being fearful around eating. Um, Quite common one is kids who are afraid of vomiting or, you know, have phobias around food they become pretty selective about the foods that they're eating. And then again, didn't even realize it. And parents, of course, didn't notice that now we're off track with our growth. And it's much harder to then correct once that's happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't even think of like the, the vomiting thing. Like yeah. it, when you mm-hmm. said that, I was like, it's like being pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> you have to like, be aware of how it's going to taste if it comes back up. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or just fears around like, you know, is this food going to make me sick or I ate this food once um and didn't wow. feel well or yeah. Um yeah, a lot of really unique intricacies with eating um and yeah, and and just how that can shift as a child grows and gets older and then puberty is probably the main like where it starts to become more noticeable to the family, to doctors, um, just because their growth is pretty, you know, affected by that. Okay. Wow. Is it a concern if their, their growth or their weight gain or however, like physically we're tracking that isn't off, but like, like, could they still be having other things, other symptoms because of the eating and the anxiety? piece of it Does yeah that yeah um yeah so there's some concerns of you know kids who are like you know overeating or there's a subjective you know binge eating concern where um you know maybe they've had a weight gain associated with that and that causes concern for parents and doctors um but almost always there are other behaviors woven into that like you know restricting earlier in the day and then binging in the evening is an example. Um, So they might not have weight loss because they're making up that food intake later in the day, but the distress around the food and eating is still there. Um, and, and, And the main kind of treatment intervention is we have to normalize eating behaviors so that the body can have predictability with the amount of nourishment that it gets. And then of course, if there's a need to gain weight, we have to modify eating temporarily to get the amount of food needed to regain. Um, And yeah, and like something that's really interesting for anyone who wants to learn more about this, there is a famous study called the Minnesota Starvation Study. Um, it, It was actually conducted in Minnesota. And this was done kind of around the World War time where they were wanting to examine the effects of starvation on soldiers and individuals who didn't have access to as much food. Wow. So, yeah. So they took these, um, these were kind of young adult men who volunteered to be in this study and these were healthy, 
no medical concerns and no history of eating disorders or psychiatric concerns. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of the study was to limit food intake slightly, not significantly. So I think it ended up maybe being around like 500 calories a day less than what they would typically eat. And they observed, you know, what happens when people aren't eating as much as their bodies need and are used to. And the effects were so significant that, um, and this is why the study became so um, well known in the community where these men developed anxiousness, you know, rigidity. They were overly concerned about food and their body appearance. Um, they became pretty depressed and agitated. Um, they were they had a hard time um, correcting their behaviors and kind of, you know, um, just overall effects on functioning were pretty clear. Their sex drive went down. Um, there was one incident of, you know, this man like becoming somewhat psychotic and started hearing and seeing things. And so, oh my gosh, right. Like it was significant, like uh, changes and not only their physical, you know, health and well-being, but m- more notably, like the emotional side of things um, was really impaired. And then they found that these men who had no history of dieting or body concerns developed preoccupation with how they looked, how much they weighed, what they ate, foods being wrong or bad. Um, And those symptoms were very much embedded in not eating enough. Yeah, versus the opposite, which most people think, you know, I want to diet and lose weight. So then I'll, you know, change my eating where nope, it was the opposite. Like the symptom was after the fact that they had already eaten less and lost weight. And then they refed these men back to, you know, what they needed and what they normally would eat. And pretty much all of the symptoms like went away just because their brain. Yeah. So it was such a cool study. And that's exactly what I see in my practice all the time is teens and kids will present with, you know, my child is so much more anxious or, you know, they can't focus in school. Their grades have dropped. They seem depressed and withdrawn. And because I treat eating disorders, I always ask about eating and growth and like, yep, look at the growth chart. Like they've, they were in the, you know, the 70th percentile and now in the, you know, they're in the 50th. Mm-hmm. That's probably a big reason why you're seeing a lot of these changes in their temperament and their mood and behavior. And then I refeed them and we do good treatment. And then, oh, my kid's back. Like their mood is better. They're engaged. Their energy is better. They're eating more normally. They're not as worried about their body and how they look. And so that is such a unique dynamic. And one of my favorite parts of treatment is seeing the child become, you know, who they really are and not, um, not so impaired by malnourishment. Yeah. Beautiful. That uh, this experiment is why it's only 500 calories. Yeah. It wasn't a lot, especially. Yeah. For like, yeah. But that, but I think that is that, that is also why eating on a regular schedule in a normalized way is so important because it doesn't take much for our brain to perceive starvation. So like, I mean, oh. think, of, think of like ha- being hangry, right? Like we I think about that all the time. <laughs> right. Like if I eat <laughs> meal, like I get agitated and like irritable and that is kind of, that's kind of what happens, but you know, full blown where the the body is really smart and and it doesn't understand these nuances so all it all it perceives is i used to be getting this amount of food and now i'm getting this it must mean that we're in a famine and there's not enough food available and so now i need to compensate for that and you know i need to slow down 
digestion. And unfortunately, that makes people feel full too early, or it takes them a while um, to have an appetite because the body's trying to make sense. If you don't have food, what's the point of making you feel super hungry? Right. You know, so the body does a really good job biologically with that. But unfortunately, that's what makes it so hard then for someone to correct it on their own because their body doesn't think there's enough food. So it's not going to cue them correctly to eat the amount they actually need. Um, And it doesn't take much for that to happen. So yeah. Yeah. Only 500 calories. And if you're a growing kid. Yeah, Yeah, totally. That is like, that's a major effect. Yeah. Yeah. The way you're describing it to the, so I have some clients in uh, eating disorder, like kind of remission, but you know, still something to track. And it's, with the Ozempic and Manjaro and those coming yeah. out, um, how much that is on their mind that like, you know, if I were to start using symptoms again, I could just go get this injectable and um, the, the studies. And I'm not meaning to dog these medications because they are very effective for the people that need them, mm-hmm. who it is prescribed for. Um, I, I'm noticing like, I feel, cause I don't know that much about, it, I feel concerned about, my eating disorder clients using those and maybe it's harder for kids and teens to get their hands on an injectable let's hope I would hope yes <laughs> um, but so no I think describing yeah. that like digestion slows down like that's what those shots do is like sh- slows down your digestion and you're not hungry anymore and then like all of a sudden you're losing a, a yeah. lot of weight very quickly yep yep yeah it, there's a huge risk, I think, in in terms of the effects that that has. And the reality is like any diet, right, um, Mm -hmm. is there's there's typically a rebound effect where, yes, you can lose weight. um, But the second that, you know, you're not using the drug or if, you know, you can't maintain restrictive dieting forever, like that yo-yo dieting effect where Mm -hmm. your body then will end up regaining that weight almost always and oftentimes more. And they've they've done studies about this, that, you know, people who diet versus people that don't, you know, calorie counter track, um, individuals who diet over years end up gaining more than if they didn't diet at all. And that's because the body is trying to support health long term. So if you're supposed to be, yeah, if you're supposed to be in this range of like your genetically determined weight, and that might not, that might not align with our societal standards of what beauty is. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you're meant to be in a larger body, for example, and you lose weight, you're technically underweight, and then your body thinks it's not getting enough food. So then when you when you know, the diet ultimately fails, and you regain that weight back, the body often will do something called overshooting, where it will think, oh, I hope there's not another famine, but just in case there is, we better increase weight to protect this person from future weight loss. So (laughs) yes. And just the effects on behavioral behavior around food, right? Like dieting leads to a lot of obsessiveness around food and rigidity. And, um, those behaviors can unintentionally, um, make it hard to, yeah, maintain the healthy weight the person needs. That is so interesting. Wow. Yeah. I'm curious about the hormonal part, like especially for like kids and teens you're working with and hormones play such a huge role and food communicates with our body and it affects our like cortisol levels and that 
is going to communicate with our hormones? Like how big of an effect does that have on? Yeah, I would say like most, you know, most kids who are suffering from an eating disorder just present pretty, like, just like pretty depressed and anxious. So they might be, you know, have less interest in things, less energy, their sleep is related to, you know, um, just disrupted as well. Um, they're, they might be a lot more irritable and agitated. And so of course, like it's, it's common that these then, you know, these individuals do get, um, assessed and like, you know, for depression, but, um, when really it's, it's a lot of it could simply just be because they're struggling with an active eating disorder. Um, yeah. And then, you know, teens who are really active is a whole nother thing, right. Where, you know, kids and teens who are active in sports and, um, that's another way to kind of accidentally back into an eating disorder where they might not know that they have to eat more on the days they're really active. And yeah, so there's a lot of factors and I think why it's so, it's just so common um, for kids who should always be growing and gaining weight. It doesn't take much for them to stall out. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious too, like what's the line between, or how do we know where the line is between picky eating and like disordered eating? Yeah. So I would say, um, like the main most important thing is that their weight stays on the same trajectory that, you know, historically they have been. So in turn, like if you look at a growth chart, you know, there's different percentiles, right. And the percentile doesn't matter. Kids can be very healthy in the fifth percentile. Kids can be healthy in the 95th percentile. That is a genetically determined, like your body likes to be in a certain range and it will work hard to stay within that range. So regardless of where the child falls on their growth chart, the most important thing is that they stay pretty steadily along that same percentile. So it should trend, you know, upward and and steady. So any deviations in that so any dips below that would be, that's now we're at risk. So the main thing is we need to increase their eating and high fat, high calorie foods to get them back to that. Now, if there's a steady on the growth chart, <clears throat> that's great. We're not working against like, you know, health risk that way, but it's more of the behavioral component of helping them develop a balanced, relaxed relationship with food and eating. So, um, you know, picky eating, you know, we want, your preferences are okay, but we sometimes need to try foods multiple times to determine whether we actually like them or not. And sometimes we also just eat things, even if we don't love them, because we need variety in our foods. Um, And so there's so many different ways that, you know, picky eating can be pretty mild, and then it can get pretty significant, like ARFID and, you know, avoidant restrictive eating. So, Mm -hmm. um, Interventions will differ based on what the concerns are. Um, but as parents, I think, you know, continuing to set expectations for, you know, we have to try foods, even if we don't think we'll like them, we have to try them because part of it is, can you try this food and handle it? If you don't love the texture, if you don't love the taste, could you still eat it? Because there's going to be lots of times going to a friend's house, going to an after school or, you know, an after sporting event activity or dinner going to a wedding where we don't get to always choose the foods. So we have to learn that I can eat different foods, even if I don't love them or if they feel, you know, they're not my, my favorite or the favorite texture, things like that. Um, and that only comes through practice and experience of exposing them to those types of things. Um, yeah. So lot, I mean, from a young age, like just introducing all different foods, encouraging all food groups, 
making sure that as parents, we're not forbidding any foods um, or creating rules around foods. Like this is a bad food. We shouldn't eat this or, you know, so just being mindful about how as parents, we are speaking about food and encouraging um, flexibility and, you know, normalized behaviors around food. Interesting. I was reading something about that with like Halloween candy, that there was kind of this push of like, you know, don't restrict the Halloween candy and don't like you're putting this idea of like, you can only have one because it's so bad for you. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I think again, what's a, what's a normalized behavior with Halloween candy or candy in general, like most, like it's probably not normal to like take a whole bag and like sit on the couch and watch shows for hours, like not normal, not balanced, but is it normal to enjoy a treat like each day and like in a way that feels intentional and balanced? Like, sure. Um, and so as parents, you know, you can, a lot of that is also modeling, like, you know, mm-hmm out of these, you know, this, this candy, like, could you pick two for today or which, which are your two favorite for today? So, um, you know, you're creating expectations to enjoy all foods, but you're also supporting and creating some structure around that too. Yeah. Yeah. Which we do with other foods too, right? Like even at dinner time, it's like, I'm not taking four scoops of peas. Right. Yes. And the reality is, is that most kids, I mean, just like when kids are babies, they needed like fatty milk to grow and develop their brain. Mm. So kids do need a higher fat, higher calorie diet than adults. And so if we project our own eating habits onto our kids, that might not be actually in their best interest. Um, Where, you know, so especially teenagers, because their brains are growing very rapidly and any normal teenager is like gravitates toward like pizza chips, like, because that's what their brain actually really does need more of. Um, and so again, we want to encourage variety and eating at regular times and having snacks in between meals and, and that setting them up for success with that eating routine. Interesting. Eating stuff just feels like such a big, like mountain to climb with kids sometimes like it's just like yes oh there's so many things and we want to make sure they're getting what they need right because let me tell you mine would be fine if I never had a vegetable in the house <laughs> ever again in their right. whole entire yeah. lives they yeah would be fine with that yeah yeah oh it's just yeah there's just so many things to consider and I have one pretty picky eater and so trying to get him to do anything is yeah 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 and that's kind of what I yeah like um you know behave managing the behavior right like it's totally normal for kids to resist or to kind of evade um and this is true for like brushing your teeth or eating your vegetables like anything you know if if there is a you know kind of like a we're stuck and we're not getting cooperation. Like kids, I think do respond well to kind of having a, a plan of, you know, if you can, you know, every time you try a new food or every time you brush your teeth before bed, like you can earn a point and those can be for fun things. So having, mm. you know, sometimes having a reward system for specific behaviors that, you know, any parent wants to improve cooperation around, um, that added structure can be really beneficial if it's done correctly. Um, you know, to, to enhance motivation when motivation might not be there at first. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
What a nice way to say that. To enhance right. motivation when motivation might not be there initially. Bribing. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> bribing is bribing though, and that comes up sometimes. Bribing is when you are telling them I will do this for you if you cooperate right now. A reward system is set up ahead of time. Ooh, oh, so oh. they know the expectation and how to earn rewards. It's they can choose whether they do it or not. But yes, I told there's a it's a fine line, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but one of them sounds psychologically more healthy and effective. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like I love my job, but I don't work unless I get paid, and I know that if I work, I get paid, so I'm motivated to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all are motivated by rewards in life and things that are tied to our efforts. Yes. That's a great, you know, and this is making me think about this too, with, um, you know, historically eating disorders weren't always recognized appropriately by insurance companies. Um, there was a huge case. Um, that's how Anna Weston, um, her name kind of got more well known is that her parents really fought for, I think they sued Blue Cross Blue Shield um, because they wouldn't pay for a hospitalization stay. And um, she subsequently lost her life. And um, they ended up meeting with the Obama administration to make some changes with the healthcare system so that um, insurance was going to pay for like hospital stays um, for eating disorder clients. Like they would only do it if like if you had like depression or um, they weren't counting uh, trigger warning suicidal ideation if it was just with an eating disorder. So, Which is so, that's so just yeah amazing because you know eating disorders are the most deadly psychiatric illness and really like calling it a psychiatric illness is a, is to some not even that accurate because when when someone is especially with like anorexia or where there's significant weight loss that you know, there are, it is such a physical, um, there are just such physical consequences to being underweight that it it is, it is for many nearly impossible for them to refeed themselves out of that. And so, um, just because of the, the changes that happen in the body that make it so difficult for them to eat. So, um, yeah, it's no one, no one asks for an eating disorder. No one wants one. Um, No. And that's, yeah, it's so frustrating when there's barriers in place for accessing the right treatments. Mm-hmm. I just Googled it. So Blue Cross Blue Shield is the correct um, insurance company. And I'm not going to edit that out because whatever, they're on my case anyway. So <laughs> it's, I think this sort of thing is important to talk about because I don't know that people would otherwise know that like, yeah, you as a clinician, as a patient, you have to fight to get coverage, even if you have something as life-threatening as an eating disorder. Right. Yeah. And and eating disorder treatment should trump everything else, right? Because yeah, like expecting someone to feel less depressed or less anxious when their body's malnourished is yeah. is ridiculous. Like they just, they can't, it's not, and it has nothing to do with their effort or willingness. It's just their brain doesn't care about managing emotions when it's not getting enough food. It's not essential for survival. So it, it's more important, you know, it's more worried about the organs and everything else working. So right, yeah, it's, it's silly. Yeah. And I think unfortunately that happens a lot where someone will be in therapy for years and not seeing much benefit with their mood or anxiety. And it's really because they're 
they're still malnourished or yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and there. I'm wondering too what sort of connection you see with eating disorders and the anxiety and OCD piece, especially the OCD, the very like particular um, cognitive yeah. rigidity you might see there. Yeah. So a lot of times when, um, even if individuals have a, you know, a history or they've always been kind of anxious or have struggled with OCD, like if there is, um, eating, you know, if there's eating disturbance or weight change, those symptoms are just going to escalate. Right. So, um, you know, one of the things that I think just for all therapists and parents too, but, um, mostly clinicians is, you know, any, just like we ask about sleep habits and, you know, physical activity, like we really also should be assessing like, what's, what is your eating like each day? And if there's any mention of like, you know, I, I avoid these foods. I uh, miss, you know, I frequently skip breakfast or lunch or any other kind of concerns related to that. We should definitely be looking at their growth chart Um, because then we can say, okay, like this needs to be addressed in order to make progress with other things. Um, And OCD in particular, I mean, OCD is, um, there's a lot of rigidity with OCD in terms of you know, needing things to be certain and just right. And so um, rigidity is is very common with people who aren't eating enough. And so you're going to just see more prevalence of that with it. And, and there's a lot of comorbidity between individuals who have OCD and individuals who have eating disorders too. Um, so yeah, both, you know, screening and doing a thorough assessment of what's contributing to what. And then I would defer treatment for anxiety and OCD until the eating is normalized and weight's been restored. Okay. Yeah. So interesting because I think with so many clients, they have eating behaviors and then they're that's coming secondary as far as treatment goes to the depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, self-harm, like all of that is the target. But it sounds like like we're doing it backwards. Like they should be doing the eating disorder treatment first. And then if they even still need. Exactly. Yes. Treatment, doing yep. that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that just goes to just under, you know, um, there's just unfortunately just a lack of training and education among um, our profession related to like totally. evidence-based mm-hmm. practice. And, um, and, and yeah, it's such a specialized area that, it makes sense why why it gets missed or why maybe the treatment isn't as effective as it could be. Um, also, yeah. though, like we all eat, like we all have to eat to sustain life, and it would be—I would guess it was—it would be pretty normal if everyone has some level of disordered eating. Yeah, even people who have like a most healthy, rigid diet, maybe they have a tough. You know, a loss in their life, and yeah. food becomes comforting. Like these things, like people, maybe it's not a diagnosable disorder, but we can all relate to some extent with right. using food. Yeah, definitely. I also I think that's comparable. I mean, sometimes I'll use the example of sleep. Right, it's something all of us do, but there's varying degrees of <laughs> yeah. quality and like how how effective is our sleep habit and like you know you know, there's people who know, like, you know, being on my phone 
right before bed, I don't get the best sleep, but I can function. Like I'm willing to, to take that, that consequence. Right. And eating is the same way. Like there's people who can go through their whole life with, you know, insufficient eating behaviors, but if, but if, if it's not affecting their functioning, if it's not interfering with their ability to fully participate in life, um, and it's not overly distressing to them, that's not necessarily an identified problem, right? It's the same with anxiety. Almost everyone understands at times what it feels like to be anxious, but how much is it, is it interfering? How much is it limiting you from the life you want to live? So, you know, for kids, yeah, there's tons of picky eaters that live a, a fulfilling life and it doesn't get in the way. That's not the problem. That's not what I would treat in my practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, is the picky eating now you only eat chicken nuggets and mac and cheese every day. And now we can't go to restaurants because I don't have exactly the type of mac and cheese you want. Um, or you have you lost weight because you're only eating five things or are scared to eat foods. I mean, then, yeah, like it becomes, uh, we need to get support for this and, and you know, increase. Um, functioning again. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. I was wondering like, what are things that parents can watch out for so that they know if they need to pursue care? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would say first and foremost, you know, the best, the most protective thing is having, this is true for adults too, but having your children eat three meals and at least two snacks on a pretty regular schedule every day. So breakfast, lunch, snack after school, dinner, and an evening snack. That's number one most important. Because if if they're doing that, the risk of veering off track is just much less. Um, And then the other thing is the variety. So making sure that, you know, when they are eating meals and snacks, making sure that there's, you know, at least two or three different food groups involved in that meal and snack. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a Lunchable, probably not the most calorically beneficial lunch. So, you know, having a sandwich with that. So like when they're eating, making sure that they're eating full amounts of food that have variety of all different food groups. Um, and then any, anything related to, um, when, you know, any observation of fears about food or your child or teenager, stop, you know, no longer eating foods that they typically would have eaten that those would also be maybe things to look into and, and monitor. Um, and, and I think that that is probably more likely to happen around, you know, the puberty teenage years. Um, but at any age, really, like if you always really did enjoy, um, you know, my homemade cookies, but now you're saying you don't eat cookies, that's more of something we probably need to explore a bit. Mm, Okay. Okay. So what, those are the things to look out for and we can do meals and snacks regularly. And is there anything else that, I mean, I'm just thinking of like, what if, what if they won't eat a ton of things? Like what if you're offering things for every meal and they just are like, yeah, no, I'm not. I don't want that. I guess that it would depend. Are they like how, like how much variety are they eating? Are, you know, will they eat some fruits or some vegetables or, you know, even just if it's like, you know, two to three like that, that's still variety, especially for kids. Um, but if it's like, if it's pretty consistent refusal, um, and they're, and, you know, as a parent, I think we have pretty good intuitions about like recognize, like their, their, their scope of eating has just become smaller and smaller and more limited. Um, yeah, then I would recommend kind of coming up with, essentially a behavior plan of like, you know, every day we have to try, you know, one new food, or we have to try 
one fruit or one vegetable. Um, and the goal is not that you like it. The goal is that you learn you can handle eating this food with normal behavior. So if you eat this green bean and your face and body act calm and confident and brave, you get a point. And once you get, you know, two or three points, then, you know, here's this little reward box you can pick something from, or you can get access to your iPad or whatever it is for the child that's motivating to them. Um, and so the goal isn't that you have to eat this until you like it. The goal is that we're practicing variety and, and exposure. Um, and, and so, and we want that to be done in a pretty neutral way of this is a challenge. Can you do the challenge? And if they can, they get rewards for that. If they refuse, um, then we would come up with a plan of, you know, that's fine if you're not ready to do that. And you can hang out here and be bored until you are. And then let me know when you're ready. So I'm not going to fight you about that. I'm not going to try to convince you or shove it in your mouth. Um, it's here. You know what the expectation is. Let me know when you're ready. Um, and usually... Um, that's a, a pretty effective approach. But again, as a parent, you, you know, you'd want to decide if you're, you know, able and willing to invest in that because it, it will take some consistency and time as well. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why people like me exist too, that, you know, it's, it, there, it's a, there's some nuances and, and you want that support. So if it's seeming to be difficult, um, you know, finding a good provider who's familiar with these types of concerns can be really helpful too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what's your um, opinion on dessert? I love dessert. <laughs> the conversation around this house at dinner time. Are we yeah. Um. So I I guess like it, it you know is is dessert a like a pretty normalized part of your family's day or um, I would want to learn a little bit more about your own beliefs and preferences around that. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, sometimes we have it and that we'll let them pick something and sometimes we don't. And mm -hmm. it's, it depends yeah. on the day. Like, it depends on if we went and got ice cream that afternoon, I'm not going to be like, yeah, then let's have some more sugary stuff before bed. You sure. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so assuming that the kids are you know, have normalized behaviors and are on, you know, healthy growth and all of that. Um, I think you just set up with the expectation like you would with anything else is like, Hey guys, just so you know, we're going to go out for ice cream after dinner today. Or, you know, because we had a treat earlier, you know, that's going to be our, our dessert for the day. Um, so the more that you can get ahead of it, I think it's, and this is true for anything, right? Like dessert or just iPad time or whatever it is. I think we set kids up for better emotion management when they know the expectation ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like, you know, we can talk about foods as like, you know, these are foods that are like great to have as much as you want. And these are foods that are more occasional treats. We have them on occasion. We enjoy them. It's, it's important to have them sometimes, mm -hmm. um, but this is how we would normally eat these foods. Um, and so you're just having dialogue that's neutral about the food. Um, yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, because it's dessert, I think we sometimes have, you know, biases about that. But like, it's, it's really no different than like, you know, like, um, like having like sleeping with your iPad next to you, like that just might not be as a family, something that you would want and encourage. And so we just talk about like, this is how we use our iPad. This is, these are ways that as a family, we're gonna use technology. And so it, it's kind of a, it's a, 
lifestyle behavior that you would teach and model in the way that fits with your values. But um, the main thing is you're not identifying that as like a, a that's bad for you or you shouldn't have that or we're never going to have that. Those are more, um, I would say, more higher risk type of messages about foods. Okay. Yeah. What about talking about it? And we've done a fair amount of like, this gives you this kind of energy or this would give you this kind of energy. Like you need something that's going to give you some energy that's going to last a while rather than something like dessert energy is wild and crazy and for a little while and then it's gone. So like you need some protein or you need some whatever to help you have energy that lasts longer. Is that like yeah, I love that. I think that's great. Okay. Yeah, because and I, that's what food is—is is it's energy, and and there's mm-hmm. you know every food does something different for our body, and that's why we need all foods. Um, and so yeah, like certain foods we just want yeah to have more of. And again, like as younger kids, like parents are still going to be the main um, sources of you know plating your kids' food and providing them with the variety, so that just simply through you, they're learning what does a meal look like? What should my snacks look like? Like, you know, if, if, if your kids are going to grab like, you know, a a container of Pringles for their snack, like that's then on you as a parent to be like, I'm like, here's a snack we can have after school. And it's going to have some Pringles. It's going to have some yogurt and a cheese stick. Like though that is a good full meal that has variety. It's the same as if, you know, if, if my daughter just grabbed like a handful of strawberries, great love strawberries. That's not enough. You need to also have some, you know, crackers and some, um, applesauce with it or something. Right. And so like, regardless of the food, we want it to be variety and, um, make, you know, satisfy and lead to fullness. I feel like we're (laughs) all in this like rocked schemas place where we're like, uh, there's so I'm computing so much Mm -hmm. and I cannot, output the call like the questions that I have <laughs> and you know what here's the thing this is what I'll tell parents and I I will reassure myself that like the, the research does strongly suggest that parents inherently know what their children need to grow and develop so if your kids are on track you're clearly feeding them in the way that their body needs right like if they're functioning and their growth is on track if their growth isn't on track it's likely the majority probably isn't even related to you as a parent. It's other factors. Like maybe they have some fears developing or they um, have been really active or they got the stomach flu for two weeks and that really threw off their appetite. So, you know, I, it's, it's rare that I would ever really like talk to a parent, even one-to-one about the things they're doing wrong. It's more about what do we need to like, just support normal behaviors around food. And a lot of times parents do that. And, um, It's just, there's a lot of factors. It's like, we can only plant seeds as parents and a lot of the other factors are out of our control. And so uh, most parents do well and definitely enough in terms of nourishing their kids. That's so good to hear. We, I don't know if you could tell by the title of the show, but we have some anxiety about (laughs) uh, (laughs) supporting our children enough. (laughs) 
Yes, I do too. I mean, I do this work all the time. It's the same with things like the second my daughter's like, oh, I'm afraid of this. I'm like, what do we need to do to face that? Yeah, we need to have a behavior plan and get you on track. So yeah, like there's some of this is just it's just being a parent, having kids, kids have things come up. Um, yeah. And, and we just, you kind of have to roll with it. And then if it's like, I don't know what the heck to do, then your job is as a parent, ask for help. And then there is someone who could help. And yeah, it takes a whole community. There, That's another like consistent thing we're hearing is like, ask for help. You cannot yes. do this all on your own. Mm-hmm. Especially when we're talking about something that is so very specific and you need a very specific type of as many trainings, a lot of knowledge behind something like eating mm-hmm. disorders or disordered eating that you, you especially in kids yeah right? yeah Tons of unicorn like that's <laughs> why we say it's hard enough to get eating disorder support it's yeah. hard to get support therapeutically for kids to get that together yes I yeah. mean yeah definitely um my daughter loves unicorns so she will be thrilled that I am one Apparently, you are a unicorn princess <laughs> warrior therapist. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Well, this is so. I'll re record your intro <laughs> with a proper, like, royal, the trumpets playing. <laughs> Very. <laughs> We really need people to know what kind of specialized training it really does take and the knowledge that like we as like the average parent is not going to know all of this stuff and that it's okay to ask for help. And yes. Yeah. I I would say even, yeah. And a lot of clinicians and doctors don't necessarily know all the, 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 you know, the intricacies of, especially with kids and teens, it's just, their needs are so different. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So true. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us and really hoping, I mean, we're really hoping that this can help bring some awareness, but also just validating and normalizing parents' experiences. And um, hopefully this can bring up for if anybody's wondering, maybe it settles some anxiety or it's something where they go, okay, this is something we need to look into. And Megan Cunningham is someone we can go to or you know that there are professionals that can support you and your your family through this yes absolutely yes it's been a pleasure I appreciate you having me on it's been fun so good it's been fun yeah just love learning I I love it all so much yeah I I do (laughs) and sometimes I get like like I feel like I'm a little stunned today and I'm just like I know I have all these things to like, like, I need to just sit quietly for a few minutes. <laughs> Let it all seep in. Like, there's just so many things that I'm like, oh, okay. I don't have to be like so worried about this or I can work on this or whatever. Like, there's just yeah. a lot. And it's, yeah, I love gathering all this information and hopefully it's helpful for people. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes I'll joke with families that parenting is like, a game of whack-a-mole where like the second you get one it's like oh a new problem a new concern a new issue a new fear and it's it's just you're constantly right like mm-hmm. you're constantly parenting and I guess that's yes that's the point mm-hmm. so true so true if you're listening and you like this content and you want to hear more follow us 
on Spotify, Apple. We're also on YouTube now because we worked really hard for like six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so tech savvy. <laughs> so obviously, again, this is five star content. So it was five stars. <laughs> Obviously, obviously. So follow us and give us five stars. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, Facebook well, and Instagram. Oh, Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, it we was, actually do okay at those. Yeah, we do because we're we, hilarious. <laughs> we already <laughs> have them, so we kind of do what we're doing. But <laughs> did we Google how to make a TikTok? Yeah, we did. We did. We did. <laughs> and it took both of us. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. And we will be back next week with some content for you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.